much for having me. I'm uh, sorry that I wasn't here to hear your talk and to be here for the other uh, discussions that have been here this term, and it won't happen in another term, but some personal matters came up that had to be resolved before I could come. Um, I'm, of course, delighted to talk to you about this topic. Um, I come from a tradition which is very simple to describe, um, tough-minded, empirical social science, and as I'm near retirement, I've decided it's time for me to deal with some important questions of an ethical issue that uh, one should be concerned with, and perhaps I could add some um, knowledge to coming out of the kind of background I come from. Now, this August uh, will be the 20th year since the famous book by uh, Rachel Maslow was uh, published for the United Nations on something had to be done about uh, children and armed conflict. And her writing had a tremendous impact on how the United Nations um, has acted. And we're going to look over some grand data about this topic and look at some um, general issues concerned with how to resolve the problem of children and armed conflict. Um, I'll be saying, using quite a bit of uh, numbers that I'll be putting up on the board. Um, it's all fairly preliminary. Um, I think I might as well make a justification right off the top. The United Nations has spent literally millions and millions of dollars developing, for example, the uh, Human Development Index, uh, but they don't have any statistics on military security issues. And I'll be having to, therefore, do some initial work in that field and hopefully we can convince people to do a much better job. Um, the point that I want to begin with is how the situation is today in terms of children in armed conflict, in terms of the numbers of people involved. And I'll be continuing to develop these numbers throughout the talk. Um, depends who you listen to. There are between quarter million to half a million uh, children involved in armed conflict around the world today. And that means they are acting as child soldiers. We're not talking about the other issues related to children, like are they killed in warfare, are the hospitals destroyed, those kind of things I will discuss. But we're talking about at least a quarter million children are actually employed around the world in some kind of military force or other. Of course, there are various other ways to go at these numbers. There's at least 20 million uh, children. By children, right now, I mean under 18, but I'll come back to definitions later. There are at least 20 million children who no longer can stay in their own homes, who have been sent off to uh, out of their homes and into other parts of the country or into refugee camps in some other country. But at least at the start of this talk, I'm only talking about the 300,000 people that are directly involved in working for either government armed forces or for other um, um, armed groups or violent armed groups within the country. Now, the first night number to get straight is that there are seven countries in the world. Uh, by the way, the map you have is a consolidated map. So you, when I'm done this short of the talk, the map will make more sense than it does right now. There are seven governments that actually continue to 
employ children under 18 in their armed forces. It's also true that those countries also have some armed groups against them in the countries. So if we want to think in terms of what those countries are, you can see that although it's sometimes said it's only black Africa, it's not just black Africa. Myanmar, Afghanistan, Yemen, and then the standard ones, Sudan, South Sudan, Democratic Republic of the Congo, continue to have uh, soldiers that are under 18 and often under 15 years of age. There also are 14 countries that uh, have soldiers in their armed rebellious groupings. That does include the seven countries I've already mentioned, but, and I maybe could put the picture up easier for you to see what happens here. Uh, all this modern stuff, of course, is, there are the countries that uh, have children, rebel groups that have children uh, as soldiers. And of course, we're seeing now that it's not clearly a black African issue, because uh, we have them more in the Philippines, in Myanmar, and so on. And if you add them all together, the United Nations calculates that there are at least 55 what they call situations, that is, places or groups that together both or one of the partners uses armed soldiers. So 55 different uh, uh, groupings of them, and you can find out this list in detail. I have it here if you want to look at it, but of course it is published by the United Nations and comes out of the second signature of the Secretary General of the United Nations every year uh, in the springtime. These groupings uh, illustrate that the, the, the number of countries is profound. And when we go to another slide, and this one, of course, will show you how confusing this stuff can be. Um, let's see if we can't go higher. The number straight here. Because there are countries that also have children in armed conflict who are neither governments, nor are they armed groups against governments, nor are they just armed groups inside a country. There's another group of countries which the Secretary General is not sure quite where to put them. Um, we know that they do have soldiers um, uh, in some groups within the country, but the Security Council has not had I don't think it's quite yet. We don't know each other quite well enough to use the right word here. The right strength of character to say that uh, these places should have to do something about their children. They're, they're a little bit afraid to take on countries like India and these kinds of issues, even though they managed to put it onto their longest list of all. Now, I'm going to go on to talk about this uh, but I want to make sure that you all know where I come from. As I said, this I am not an expert in the case study, um, like Annette Eisler is, who's a member of this group, who is sort of number two in running this organization, who's a specialist in Columbia, and I am not an expert like she is. Or I've just finished reading a book uh, on Sierra Leone um, by a professor at War Studies College in, in Kings, and he knows much more about Sierra Leone than I'm ever going to learn. In her case, the first case, she's an expert in social processes. In the second case, he's an expert in psychological variables and how they might explain the kinds of actions that people undertake in these countries. But this is not the kind of work that I am going to do, and I think we'd be better to say my work is close to the machinery of government kind of work 
than the study of individual countries and their social uh, structures. Now, I want to make another general point before I start, is that much of the literature in this field uh, comes from the, what we may call the economist school about uh, public uh, and social development inside of countries. And the reason that that matters is because much of teaching in universities is, and about the United Nations is related to economic variables. Is the human development index an index that we can use? And can we employ it and should we raise more money to help people that have low human development uh, in terms of the index and so on? And there are literally, um, I wouldn't say thousands, hundreds of studies commissioned by the United Nations in this kind of field. And then none, uh, generally speaking, in the field of security where everything becomes a study of case studies or a case uh, studies of international law. We know that this is not a good argument. If you've read the book, The Locus Effect, which I highly recommend to you, Locus Effect uh, argues that you can't really do economic development without looking at security, and you can't really do security without looking at economic development. That for too long, the discipline has been divided into two approaches to the discipline, and rather than bringing the two together as needs to be done. Of course, I belong to that school already in my short time that I've begun this project. The interconnectedness of the variables, both the moral and the empirical variables, the conflicting interests make it almost impossible to understand this whole subject. What's happening is people are fragmenting themselves into country studies or one peacekeeping group studies rather than understanding the totality, which of course is what the economists do when they tell us about things like uh, human development indicators and how they can explain uh, how money should be used within the United Nations. Um, and so I do not come from that school and I won't be able to enlighten you about it. Uh, and I was hoping that at least one of you would be an expert on the, these, each of these countries. The perfect world I would cut together with people who are experts in each of these countries in order to use the kind of work that I do to apply to these countries. Now, one way to proceed to do this, as I've said, is to try to examine the data of all, all countries. And what I'm going to put up on the board now is going to perhaps bore you. And I have no objection at all as my, my daughter teaches international security. There's a young person in the family. They've got a couple of grandchildren coming now and why I've not been here this term. And the she, of course, immediately objects to everything her father says, uh, because what does the data really prove? Well, think of it as the first effort, a preliminary effort, to see what happens when you begin to look at all the huge variables that are involved in the study of data and these groupings. And I'll come back to other ways you've thought about the topic in a minute, but I want to make sure this third Make sure I've got the, the third approach. This is just a list of the parties. I'm going to come back to them. Let's keep, go to this one. Back past this. It seems a bit out of order. I suppose it is. Am I going the wrong way? I am. Um, let's get to the data. There. Now, 
in order to determine where there will be child soldiers, not where there are today, and what to do about them before they even arrive, we have to do some kind of weak, predictive kind of study. This is the first effort to do this. So all countries in the world are listed on the UN list, are listed on the left-hand side. Then what I've done is taken all the major indices that are used in international relations. So human development index, GDP per capita, poverty index, like human development index, equal uh, freedom indexes, fragile state indexes, because watch it now. This may be for you not don't take on my daughter's mistaken role. None of the other ones predict well enough. It is only when you add them all together, either the fragility of countries, their economic development, whether they are free within that country, whether they have other problems, and you add them all together, you get a score that actually will predict through to the countries that have this kind of level of violence. So, and we know, I told you already from the book, Locus Effect, you've got lots of theoretical work coming up now about how development and security issues need to be linked together. And look what happens here. I'd just like you to go with me, although, remember now, it's preliminary. Please come up with a better design. Give me a better way to do this. If not today, send me a note. Tell me how you would do it. But, of course, Monaco and Nauru and Samarin are totally irrelevant. There's not enough data there. You can see there's not enough data to predict all <laughs> But look what happens when you look at the country that when you add all the scores together, I don't think you want me to go through how this is done, but I'll send it to you if you'd like. It ends up that the country with the worst set of variables so ends up being Somalia. And what does it have? It has government with child soldiers and it has rebel child soldiers out in the countryside. In other words, it has the highest concentration of child soldiers. The next country, of course, doesn't fit at all because of course everything is kept secret there, so it's going to screw up the analysis one way or another. But what happens after that? Central African Republic. Let me just use this as an example. It's 25th worst country in terms of corruption. It's the third most fragile state. It has the lowest GDP per capita. It has is second worst in terms of human development. It's worst in terms of freedom, in the worst grouping, and it is 13 in terms of economic freedom. And guess what? It ends up the sixth. Already, we're predicting two countries that will have the possibility of having child soldiers. Now, of course, I've cheated, because what I should be doing to you is I should have had the blank table up here, and then you should have said, oh, yeah, they've got child soldiers. Oh, they don't have. And of course, then you'd have seen this. What I've got, actually, is the correlation are by the color of the map. So all the countries that have orange have both government and rebel soldiers. All the countries that are just yellow have opposition forces, i.e. violent non-state actors. And the blue ones are the ones that, well, there's some debate about the Security Council, not sure. And look what happens. We're predicting almost every one of them. Let's move down here and see what happens now. I'll be darned. As the indicators get better, the number of them having child soldiers decreases, right? And watch what happens. They're fading right out. I'll be damned. And what's the last one? And this is why I really wish Annette was here, because she was going to be my outlier. She was going to look at this data and she was going to say, that is a week ago, she said. It doesn't work, Bob, because Colombia is 
relatively well off compared to the others, but they do have child soldiers. She would have forgotten to tell you that this past week that they have negotiated a treaty to get rid of the child soldiers in Colombia. In effect, the data might have predicted something would happen in the future. It never happened with the plan. But one could make the argument that, in fact, this data predicted so well that we actually knew what country was first going to get rid of children with arms, uh, arms and were acting against the government of the day. And in fact, we have had, in the past week, uh, an agreement between the FARC and the, government, uh, and the United Nations on getting rid of children armed conflict. I want you to see that. Because you can see, and we, if we go on through it, you'll see that the rest of the countries will never have, they'll say none of them have. Once you get a better index, so you can see what happens. The lower your, lower your score on my index, by high, much higher, the probability is that you'll end up with children arms, either from the government or from the rebels. We, in fact, are getting some data here that's looking about as good as you get in social sciences. And with a little respect to our economists who do the other kind of work in for the United Nations, I think we're making better predictions than they are, or just on that data alone. Now, what's causing all this? Why is this such an easy set of variables to understand and to start to figure out what's going on in the world? Um, let me, I think we have to be careful doing this. First of all, you'd have to start with what are the big global variables affecting the world? I'm going to skip that for now. Uh, but I would like you quickly to see this. That is, the nature of the world has been changing, 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 and the literature of international relations, and certainly of government, state departments, and defense departments, has not been keeping up, in my opinion. Just take a look at this. This is my effort to typologize the old world and the new world. We still have state-based territory borders and resources. I know we've got the left-wingers who say, in fact, Oh, God, it's all gone, but it's not all gone. The states have, in fact, uh, remained in place. But we have tremendous drive now of failed states, stateless states, and, and people rootless inside and around states. Look at the state-based territory, borders, and resources. Now we have identity-based interests, ideological, ideational, nations, ethnicity, religion, global cost, all these kinds of other things that are crossing between states. States and military, the easy way to see it. State, military, and police have always been, have the hierarchical structure of one kind or another. But today we have many more movements, networks, rebels, individuals, and we have kind of flat structures. The security dilemma. Everybody's ever taught international relations begins with the security dilemma. As any country increases its security, it decreases other countries' security. And the security dilemma was, in fact, very much in vogue until, uh, let's call it 9 11. Nobody after 9 11 stopped talking about all the way the security dilemma. Uh, and ubiquitous insecurity has come in as a much more just. But of course, this means we're always going back to asymmetrical warfare, civil war, terrorism, and so on. Of course, until very recently, most criminality was seen inside of states, and criminality was state based. Now we have much more international crime, drugs, etc. High technology was prevalent before, but now we have both high and low technology. Before minimizing collateral damage, now we have maximizing collective damage. There's a total difference between the psychology, let's say, gave us the Geneva Convention, where you're trying to, supposed to minimize the, the, the collateral damage, when people say, well, who gives a damn about them? Let's just bomb them, have suicide terrorism, uh, set off a bomb in downtown 
uh, uh, Cairo and kill many people, you change into a totally different notion of what is uh, the world consists of. Before we talked about countries having victories and defeats, today we talked about religious differences, noble struggle, fanaticism. Before we said no use of weapons of mass destruction, and some people are even starting to think now it would be acceptable to have weapons of mass destruction. I'm sure nobody in this room does, but still the idea is more prevalent than it was just very recently. Um, this of course leads to a whole bunch of new transnational threats, which I'm not going to discuss today because of the concentration on children, but is the changing nature of security affecting the way we have to think about children? And of course we know that terrorism is on the rise, counterterrorism is involved, there's a diversity of armed actors, uh, organized crime and asset wars are now more prevalent than they were, children are now seen as weapons of war, there's a proliferation of small and light arms, effective cluster munitions and landmines is involved with children as much as adults. Um, just quickly going, using one of them as an example, uh, uh, AK-47 uh, is light enough today, it used to be the only grown, mature man, not me, I was too small, could go carrying an AK-47 around, but now a child of 10 years old, 10 years of age can uh, strip the weapon, uh, load it, uh, and shoot people, and can carry it around without trouble at all because it's so light. Um, and this is true of not only this particular weapon, which I'm using as an example, but many other kinds of weapons as well. Children are more or less seen to, are more seen today as being a worker, combatants and in intelligence operations they can be involved in. Of course, this is not my kind of study for today, although I would tell you that, that the Security Council have now added to the special representatives on children in conflict, have now added a women and conflict or women and exploitation new assistant to the Secretary General as of the last uh, couple of months. Uh, revenge, suicide, terrorism, noble struggle, madison, very much on the rise, and so on. I think you've got the picture. One can go from the changing variables about the world we live in to what is happening in terms of children. Now, grave violations. From a United Nations point of view, there are six grave violations. In this talk, and in most of the research, and most of the writing, and actually most of the work done by the United Nations, only one ends up being counted. This is the recruitment or use of child soldiers. Can't talk much about how to stop killing children in Syria. Not that we don't want to do that. It's just, how do you get in advance of it? Um, if you think of the um, International Treaty on Children and the protocol which tells you ages for when children can be in a military or be in a non-government terrorist grouping or violent grouping. Um, basically, the rule is as follows. I've had it mixed up in my head for a long time, but just make sure you get it right. Uh, on terms of compulsory uh, recruitment, they have to be uh, 18 and above, but if they're volunteers, they can be between 16 and 18. The reason the data is skewed, therefore, and people never quite get the message that I did not for a long time, is that the ages 15 to 18, you're not supposed to put the children into armed conflict. So the American military, for example, criticizes the age 18 and does admit people in at 17, and I think that the British uh, military does as well. 
but it, they're not supposed to be put in harm's way. So there's a difference between recruitment and actual use of them in conflict. And I think that's true in the UK, although I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it, I'd be glad to do so. The, the rest of these are all tied to international law, either humanitarian or human rights law, which I'll come to in a second, about abduction of children, attacks in schools or hospitals, and the uh, denial of humanitarian aspects. Now, the numbers I used before, the 300,000, the listing done by the United Nations about these people in Islam, does not include any of these. I've been, my wife and I have been trying to discuss it at lunch. Just why is that the case? To some extent, it's the case because the United Nations cannot make a set of rules about where you can't bomb a hospital. We can come along and condemn somebody for bombing a hospital or for using a school for a shelter for some platoons. We can do things to say they're wrong and use international laws to do something about it and perhaps absolutely send them to the International Criminal Court later or something like that. But in the short run, the only thing we can count up is how many uh, children are actually recruited into uh, groupings either by the government or by its opponent. opponents. Now, let me try one more crack at this. Practically everything I'm talking about today has been evolving in the last 20 years. We don't have much of this today. You'll, have, you'll go to a lecture next week somebody who's much more expert in international criminal court than I am, but he won't know anything about this data. You'll know everything about human rights law, but not anything about what an AK-47 feels like. It is very hard to put the whole picture together. In the old days, when I was a young Oxford student, we called the holistic approach, and nobody does that anymore. I get rid of all this fragmentary studies because the role of the intellectual was to be put it all together, be part of the put it all together community. And that not part of the fragmenting at all into its uh, bits and pieces. So here we have an effort. I've already showed you all the groupings. Then I showed you the data about the groupings. Then I gave the argument that the world is changing so rapidly that it's affecting the variables that were involved with children in our conflict. Now I want to quickly go over what's happening in terms of all the rules about this and then conclude on one section here and get your advice as to where to go next. First, in international law, international humanitarian law, international criminal law, the optional protocol, which I've already said, is the protocol which says what age is allowed, is allowed to have in international law to hire children, what age can you hire them at level, or to compel them to come into the military. Um, I don't intend to go through this. Are, are there any international lawyers in the room? I was scared to death there'd be somebody now who wants to the whole time on this topic. Clearly, this is vital. This they have pushed further ahead because of topics like international criminal court. And so I'll come back to this the international criminal court from a little bit different political scientist angle. But of course, one would want to examine all of these laws and treaties and how they affect the world of international relations. Obviously, I'm not trying to describe them under any sense. What I am more interested in is the United Nations machinery itself about children in armed conflict. Everybody knows the Security Council has 15 members. 
uh, five has a big nose, and that's going to affect all other subsidiary organs of the United Nations. Um, but they don't know much about how the issue related to children are in conflict is handled. Security Council sets up a working group. That working group is consists of 15 members. Um, they meet privately. They don't like to tell us much about what they do. At the present time, Malaysia is the chair, and Senegal as the vice chair. Um, in my opinion, the present leadership is relatively weak in terms of getting things done. When the French had control of this committee, they were driving the committee forward to new sets of uh, responsibilities and new sets of institutions. But the, the uh, at present time, it's mostly status quo. Um, it's difficult to get things done in that committee um, because there's always some, some, almost every country's got a friend there. So if you're from the Sudan, you'll have a country in the one of the 15 that's your friend. If you're from uh, Yemen, you'll have a country that's your friend and can prevent action because of the friendship pattern. I'll come back to the friends in another point later, but the point is that they operate on the unanimity principle. Essentially, it goes like this. If you don't say anything, it's okay, but if you raise your voice and criticize it, it's dead. So you're not going to get a lot of, of action out of that committee about the uh, um, uh, children armed conflict issues. Um, since this is 20 years now, we've had a special representative secretary general um, whose whole career and job is to look after uh, this issue for the secretary general. She's Nigerian. She's a wonderful lady. Are you ready for it? Although one person got right yesterday when I tried to vote her. I'm going to be showing this huge volume of staff and institutions that are reporting to these people. How many people does she have working for her? How many people? Are you in a, are you in the government department? Are you in the, are you in the department? Are you in the department? No, no. What department? Middle East defense. That's not a good one for me. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, depa my department has eight professors. Now we think that's, as you know, insignificant. How many historians are there? And look at what history they turn. No, never mind. Um, <laughs> she only has nine employees. All of international law, all of these countries with problems, 55 different incidences, right? In 24 different kinds of cases going on around the world. Every peacekeeping unit is told they must now look after questions related to children and armed soldiers. And most peacekeeping missions today actually have a child protection officer with them, actually assigned to go with the soldiers into the field. More than half of them have that. And all of this reports back to her. Um, I like her very much. I think she should have her staff quadruple or something. It's totally ridiculous. Now, what is she in charge of? Uh, I have to go to the next slide. I do apologize for this. Have I got time to go a little bit more? Yeah, here's what happens out in the field. If you've never seen this, I think you should, especially those of you who are in the military. I think some of you now are in the military. Um, the Armed Forces Group, remember the 55 of them, they recruit and use some child soldiers. The UN country team that's there, it can be a peacekeeping mission, it can be a political mission, it could be as it was in Colombia, 
a, uh, a, a person heading UN organization. It might even be a UNESCO official. But the senior UN person there uh, will be in charge of a UN team, and they are required to monitor and report on all action having to do with children in armed conflict. That then is fed into a system which then looks at it again, and the list is then published by the Secretary General in his annual report called the shame list. This means that if you are a general in the Congo and you employ a child under 18, you might find your name listed in the Security Council's annual register. And I'll be coming to this in a minute because the sanctions are related to how we could treat you as a general in the Congo or a new British officer. Picking on other people. The UN country team recommends the Secretary General. He puts it on a list. The list comes out once a year in April, May, June, and it lists the 55 entities or interests where child soldiers are being uh, used by military around the world, which I mentioned before. The woman in charge of that, I just mentioned to you, is the uh, um, um, special representative for the General Inspector General on Children Armed Conflict. She has a staff of nine. She is also responsible to negotiate action plans with every government. An action plan is a plan that the United Nations gets the soldiers of a particular area or the government of a particular area to sign and say how they'll get rid of children that are used in armed conflict. And so that we give them some credit for what is happening, every single government in the world which had armed children has now signed some kind of action plan. So we have some commitment, and Chad, although I just heard some terrible stuff about Chad on the way over here, but can't actually escape from being named anymore by signing an action plan. Do you understand what I mean? And so those action plans are part of the structure of forcing states to come in line. Of course, it's a little harder to get an action plan out with the rebels, some violent terrorist or anti-government group that are out uh, in the jungle and who don't want you to tell them what to do. Um, but we would like to get action plans with every one of these um, uh, entities. There are also some problems here with the working group. Security Council doesn't want to give them enough money for them to go and investigate all the cases. And everybody's nervous about them interviewing rebels. Now, you can help me work this out. Under what circumstances should UN personnel or peacekeepers be given the job of going and interviewing violent, aggressive, non-state actors happen? Hey, could we make a deal? You won't have any children working for you anymore. Now, we all know that that's going to be a problem. Children played a major role in all of history. Uh, children were important in the uh, Crusades. Uh, children were given rewards uh, by American presidents for fighting in the Civil War. Uh, Hitler gave awards for the Hitler Union in the Second World War. And if you go through this, there are just thousands of cases where children were used in warfare, and nobody said, hey, children. And also bear in mind that, that even the concept of teenager only comes in about the 1930s. So 
These used to be grown-ups. We've changed our notion here of what the definition of a child is. But it's only understand here that we're trying to figure out, we've agreed now to do something with these children. How are we doing it? So this listing can then be acted upon in theory and supposed to shame the people out in the countries. And there's been some shaming taking place. People don't like their name used and said that you get children killed or something like that. Um, of course, the <coughs> all UN peacekeeping and all other missions are involved in the country team's approach. And they're now required when they go leave to go out in the field to study, report back, monitor, and assess the use of children in, by the government or by the rebel groups. And this required as part of the reporting technique. These are the monitoring, reviewing, uh, uh, management techniques for task forces. Of course, we also have, remember what I said about some of the damn actors? We should get some, we should look more like Canadian politics. Right? All of UNICEF's got to be looked at, the International Labor Organization, hundreds of NGOs asking for money to help them do something, watch the watch list, uh, help people in poorer countries. The friends, since nobody actually trusts the working group, there also is a group of friends in the United Nations which makes it its job to watch the working group. And you can guess from my accent, it's chaired by Canadians and always has been chaired by Canadians. <coughs> now you wouldn't know unless I told you. And there's now a new working group, a new friends group, which is to watch the working group in Geneva as well as watching them and write issues from the point of view and getting some egalitarian <coughs> arguments put in. Now, let's get to the key part of the lecture. The only way that the shaming list would work would be if there were sanctions attached to it. That is, sanctions are allowed in the United Nations under Chapter 7. Sanctions can impose for embargo on countries. They can be put on individuals. They can be put on entities. And many of us trained in political science would say they usually fail. So when we talk about the sanctions regimes and the 16 sanctions committees, these committees are in force today, and they're putting sanctions on individuals, let's say, who join Al-Qaeda, or terrorists who move money around. And these sanctions regime, though, can do other things besides arms and markets. They can control your assets or prevent you from getting your assets. They can stop you from getting a passport or traveling around the world. And this is now done to some degree. Thank you very much. This is done to some degree now around the world. And watch it now. They're right now, and this is fun for you to look into, there are 1,100 individuals or discrete entities named by the United Nations. So all you need to do is punch in United Nations consolidate sanctions list, and you can, somebody's name will pop up from every country about how bad a guy is, and he can't have a passport anymore. Now, most of you aren't very familiar with that. The sanctions exist to try to control behavior. And in recent years, the United Nations has moved from its failing strategy of whole state embargoes and sanctions to a particular country, Rhodesia, okay, 
We're going to put an arms embargo on you, and then it doesn't work. We're going to put an economic embargo on you, and it doesn't work. So you'll have the literature full of people like me writing, don't worry about arms embargo, they never work anyway. And there's all a lot of crap. You can always get the weapons, some way to get the money. Money and weapons is no problem. But in recent years, the UN has moved to what are called targeted sanctions. Name an individual or name a discrete entity inside that state and say, Mrs. Jackson, you weren't very good. You no longer can travel. Now, these sanctions committees are probably where we should go. You can probably guess what's coming. But the United Nations doesn't want to do what needs to happen. They don't want to say that the committee, the working group, that sets up the list that says who's a bad boy or a bad girl in the world, might be sanctioned. So they continue to make whole statements. We're going to do something about this. You're a bad person. We're going to shame you. And then they do not follow through with the sanctions. And they're only being, it all depends on definition. I won't spend a lot of time on it. Perhaps one person sanctioned in these 20 years. Of course, it's the way to go. Let me move to the ICC. And then we can come back to sanctions. And then I'll stop of course, there are all kinds of other courts, the tribunals, they all know about the tribunals in various countries, the domestic courts, and the international criminal courts. Just say a word about the international criminal courts. There's a lot of talk, isn't there? First of all, the problem with it is that both big countries, powerful countries, won't join it. The United States doesn't belong. China doesn't belong. Russia doesn't belong at all. And there are reasons why we could discuss international criminal courts for some time. But for now, the point is, that in order to get the International Criminal Court to achieve something, i.e. reduce the number of people involved in children armed conflict issues, it would have to punish several people. It hasn't managed to do so. So it has, in all the years it's now been here, there have only been four cases come to a conclusion, and three ended up with people guilty, and of the three, only one was Vanga, could even be said, maybe a little bit, he's involved in children are in conflict. Well, sorry, there were 300,000 children in 55 different, and they only found, in 15 years, they only found one. Of course, the United Nations doesn't want to assess the notion of criminality from the UN system down to the individual. This is why sanctions might be the only place to go. They don't require criminality. You don't require the lawyers and opposition to it. All you require is the sanctions committees which already exist, or a new sanctions committee, let's say the working group on children armed conflict, to have the ability to sanction people, and they could make their naming and shaming list have some backbone to it. Of course, that's what the former French ambassador thought, as I do, that if you're going to make this committee work, you've got to get rid of the hollow slogan, not just state and list the shame, they have to know they might, they might lose their passports. Now, the skinny cynics in the room will say, well, Bob, if you're in the jungle of Congo, you don't care too much about your passport. I, I agree there are some problems here. Uh, they don't want to travel anyway. But if you think of what's happened, for example, to the president of Sudan, He's managed to escape being brought before the International Criminal Court, the 
when you must have read the paper, because none of the Arab countries will ever send one of their leaders to the International Criminal Court. And so he can fly into other Arab countries in Africa, have a good time, fly back to his home country, and never have Interpol or any police organization pick him up and send him home. Somehow or other, we've got to go further than the listing, although the action plans are working to some extent, and the listing is working to a bit, but it's not strong enough to really make people frightened to, oh God, what is that? Political scientist. To affect behavior. What do we have, to, and I don't mind you telling me, I'm full of it. Just tell me, how do we affect behavior of the people whose names are on the shame list, who are part of the 55 situations where 300,000 people are employed against international law, against all the rules of the United Nations, has been declared that they are, unless they're nervous about what might happen. Let's end this with this. This is huge damn machinery. All these laws, and you can come week to week here at the Oxford University, and you get a lecture next week at the ICC. You get a lecture the next week on French foreign policy. You get a lecture the next week on the Congo. In the lecture the next week on the army in Thailand. What is missing in the to is, the, is the totality. What makes the whole system work? And how can we make it work better? Thank you very much, Nicole.